the 1640s in England. There was great confusion about Christmas. Some said it was so pagan and had become so commercialized. Others said it was too papist, too much Roman Catholicism. When we think about maybe things being commercialized and you know, uh, there's no doubt that takes place. In fact, I uh, was surprised. I can't remember what store it was, but they had started taking down their Christmas items and had been putting out the Valentine's Day uh, material, which we haven't even got to December 25th. When you hear the verse, the chapter in the verse 316, generally the first thing that comes to mind is John chapter 3 and verse 16. But there are two very big 316s in 1st and 2nd Timothy. In 2nd Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so in, in that he sets the source and authority of scripture. But then when we turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up to glory. And so he gives us under this and in this verse six facts, six facts concerning Jesus. It is by some considered one of the earliest creeds of the church. But it's how he introduces them, and especially the first one. And without controversy, great is the mystery of God, godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. Uh, some of the older saints would say, uh, translate it, the secret of godliness. So we, we see that right away the mystery of faith is one that is considered first and foremost to be something that is not controversial, something without controversy, that all who believe without hesitation would gladly accept these truths. These six that he would name offer not grounds for controversy. All who would be considered believers or Christians, if you will, would in no wise reject these truths. If we just jump back a few verses to, to verse 9, we'll see that 
uh, even for deacons. It says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. That man must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, that is, without doubt or reservation. What is he to hold? The mystery of faith, which mystery of godliness, mystery of faith are basically synonymous terms. And when we think about mystery in, in Scripture, that word shows up 28 times in the New Testament. And it basically means it's a secret made known only until it has been revealed by God. So we notice the first truth that he speaks of. God was manifested in the flesh. Now in that brief, that one brief statement, there are many truths that are attached. For when he says God was manifested in the flesh, the first truth then we know is the incarnation, the enfleshment, if you will, taking on human flesh. So taking on human flesh then also includes being born of a virgin. And so that would include then there would be two natures, a divine nature and a human nature all in one person. This is a great mystery. One that we would not be able to comprehend by, by human reason. This is not to say that Christ, being both divine and human, two natures in one person, is unreasonable. There are people who will say that. Well, it's unreasonable. I can't believe that. It's not unreasonable. The fact of the matter is, it's above human reason. That's the, the issue, is man who has so much pride in and of himself, if he says, well, I can't reason, I can't figure this out, so it must not be true, is only fooling himself because there is that which is the thoughts of God and the works of God that are far above any human reason. is revealed to us, is believed by us, but also known to be above our comprehension. And that can infuriate some folks, just as the doctrine of the Trinity. It is to be believed. It cannot be truly explained, illustrated, or comprehended. In fact, when we try to illustrate it, we often, in fact, will always go off the rails in the understanding of it. I think of Mary upon uh, this time and, and upon being told that she would bear the child, the child Jesus, and how she handled it. If you turn to Luke chapter 1. The angel appears to Mary. And in verse 29, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. 
and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, just as we were talking about in the psalm. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. We don't know much about Mary's background. We estimate that she may have been in her late teens. But as far as anything else, there's really nothing known about her because here she appears on the pages of Scripture for the very first time. We will know of her lineage. So she's told, and this great announcement is given to her. So in verse 34... She simply asks a question. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? The question is, basically, how can this be physically or biologically possible? And the angel explains, beginning in verse 35, the angel answered and said, said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be, be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now the sixth month for her that was called barren. And here's where it all turned, I believe, for Mary. In verse 37, for with God, Nothing will be impossible. You see, man says, it's impossible for a virgin to have a baby. It's impossible. This Holy Spirit overshadowing your stuff, this, this can't be. Yes, it can. Because with God, nothing, nothing will be impossible. So the angel explains to her what's going to take place. Mary's reply, Behold, the maid servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. <clears throat> now we know from what Mary will say or sing, depending on which way you want to look at it, beginning at verse 46 and running through 55, where she said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will, will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and to his seed forever. These are marvelous words. By the grace of God, this was not some ignorant, gullible simpleton. But given as much of God's word as in this song of Mary, 
we can understand then that she was quite a student of the word of God and a, a woman of strong intelligence. You see, Mary doesn't ask, uh, Angel, uh, explain this child to me, would you please? Uh, what is this child going to be like? Uh, what will his composition be then? Will it be 20% God and 80% man? Will he, will he speak right out of the womb? Will his two natures argue against each other? He does, she doesn't ask any of that. She says, behold, the handmaid of the Lord. You see, with her, it was the quiet acceptance of that which she knew was beyond her comprehension, strengthened by the words of the angel. For with God, nothing, nothing will be impossible. It was with her an understanding as well as what we call the immutability of God. God does not change, nor then do his promises. And so she says on, in verse 50, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. And in verses 54 through 55, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers and to Abraham and his seed forever. Forever. You see, you can only use the words forever if you believe that God does not change. So God does not change, and Jesus is God, and he does not change either. If we turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, in, beginning was, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God, and in the beginning, before anything ever was, in all eternity past, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. He was, and he, he repeats this truth for us. He was in the beginning with God. That is, in eternity past. There never was a time that he did not exist. You can't call God the eternal father without calling Christ the eternal son. For you can't be a father without a son. Or child, put it that way. And in verse 14, we find some of the most amazing words. Tremendous words, perhaps the most amazing words ever written. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. These are amazing words. And we could spend weeks, years, yea, even a lifetime studying these words and only Scratch the surface. We would still only have begun 
barely to understand the depth and the meaning of it all. For it is as Paul wrote, great is the mystery, perhaps the greatest of all mysteries of the faith. God was manifested in the flesh. The eternal Son of God, who has always been, always existed, who, as John writes, was in the beginning with God, and who tells us was God. This one also, John writes about in verse 14, he became flesh and dwelt among us. I think there is one word here that is responsible in translation for causing the greatest of confusion. And that is the word what? Became flesh. That one word for us and for our understanding causes, I think, the greatest of confusion. And, and here the King James doesn't really help us either because it said the word was made flesh. Again, um, when we hear was made or became, as our ears hear it, only one thing comes to mind. There had to be a change. He was one thing, he was the word, and then he was another. He became, must mean he became something different, but as we think this way, we would be very wrong. We would be very wrong because we don't understand when we think this way that the divine nature is not the same as human nature. There's so much of a great difference here. And so when we think of things according to human nature, in regard to divine nature, we mess up. Oh, we mess up badly. Every single error that has been ever taught about Jesus Christ starts with the idea of trying to make it all fit human nature. And it doesn't fit. It won't fit. It can't fit because we're talking about divine nature. One of the Latin words used, I think, is a real good word, and it's the word assumption. And I don't want that to be confused with the Roman Catholic doctrine of the assumption of Mary. You know, the Roman Catholic Church says, well, you know, our doctrines are ancient. You need to... You need to understand that we have ancient doctrines. You know the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary was put out by Pope Pius XII in 1950. It's only five years older than I am. The Pope said it had been divinely revealed that Mary, the mother of God, was taken up body and soul into heaven. Last person to do that before Jesus returned. That's not the assumption that we're talking about. But the word assumption in regard to what we're talking about here means the act of taking to or upon oneself, the, the act of taking something upon ourselves, or to take possession of something. And so when we plug this in, the Son of God assumed that is took upon himself flesh and blood, a full human nature, yet at the same time, as God, he remained as he was in his divinity. 
And God makes it clear in Malachi 3 and verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. And in James chapter 1 and verse 17, it's even a hymn that we sing quite often, tells us there is no variation due to change, no shadow of turning with God. Now here's the thing. We, if we're going to understand this, we've got to get down to, to something that's very important here, and that is change only happens to that which is created. Change only happens to that which is created. You can have a granite countertop. Say, well, granite doesn't change. Well, it can. And I've seen cases where over time it's been chipped. And water, if, if you look at just a, a granite out in the wild, if you will, wild granite, <laughs> if, you, if you look at it, eventually water can erode the surface, can change it. It can change. It may take a long time to change, but it can change it. Because why? It's, it's created. All created things change. But divinity never does because divinity is not created. So change happens in what is created. And that's the key to understanding this mystery. The divine nature is not the same as human nature. It's not the same kind of being as the created being is. And once again, when we try to understand God by human understanding, we start off with the wrong foot, step out of line, and yet we consistently do it. Paul wrote, God was manifested in the flesh. It shows first, when he makes that statement, God was manifested in the flesh. He says first, then, that Christ is God. That's, you can't get it much clearer than that when he says, God was manifested in the flesh. Well, who, who's that? That's Jesus. So first, it was God, but then he was manifested in the flesh means that he is true God and true man. Yeah. It's kind of, we, we like to say he's 100% God, 100% man, and, and that's, that's okay, but really, he's truly God, truly man, because when we start adding statistics in, people get confused there. Well, how can 200% equal one? It's better to, easier to say truly God and truly man in, in one. It shows the two natures in Christ, God and his manifestation in the flesh. But next, he shows that these two natures are in one person, body and soul, true man, true human nature, yet without sin. Just as Jesus in the manger was the child born of Mary, Jesus is also the son of God the second member of the Godhead. And I don't mean to be crass, but the way some people understand things, it's really weird. It's like, okay, so Jesus, he's God, but then he becomes man. But Scripture tells us that not only was Christ the creator, but that the creator Christ is holding all things together. So what does he say? Father, hold my beer. I'll be back in a while. No, doesn't say that because he doesn't stop doing what divine nature does. 
He continues on that because the divine nature is not changed. And he did not. He did not as the hymn goes. And I, 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 there's so much I love about this, this hymn, but there's some things that make me just cringe. Oh, when, when Wesley writes those words, emptied himself of all but love. Sorry, Charles. Sorry, Charlie. Not to me. But you got that one wrong. He didn't empty himself of anything. You might say, well, he set aside glory. I can go with you along that because if you look at, at the high priestly prayer that he makes in John 17, that's the only thing that he makes mention of. The glory that I once had with thee. Okay. That's why I like the, uh, in the hymn that we sing to, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh. Our confession of faith speaks clearly of Jesus that the two natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Deity did not convert into humanity. And in composition, humanity was not changed into a hybrid. As we saw two weeks ago, that there... This is all part of what was decreed before the world ever came into existence in the covenant of grace. The word was not changed into flesh, but that the entire properties of each nature remains entirely, and yet the two natures are one in Christ. Now you look and say, I don't understand that. It's fine. Don't feel bad. It's not really meant for you to understand but it is meant for you to believe. It's not a change in Jesus. When we look at his first coming, why did you come, Jesus? To seek and to save that which was lost. Well, what about the second coming? The second coming, we know, is not for salvation, but judgment. Now, he's a savior here and a judge here. Did he change? No. no, that's what he's supposed to be. One Christ, two functions, no change. Now, some might say, well, why? You know, this is Christmas. Couldn't you just give us a nice little happy thing? This is happy. Amen. You're not going to get happier than this. I'm, I'm sorry. I can say, well, let's talk about the little animals that were at the manger. But then we can't because... We're not really told that there were animals at the manger, so that would be a silly thing to go about. Hey, let's have a sermon that's not in the Word of God. <laughs> it is important for us to know that God does not change. It is imperative that we know that and trust that. And, and first, if he changed, he would cease to be God. He wouldn't be God anymore. That's, that's very important. I, I would think that, that ranks 
as about as high as you can get it. And second, all his promises, to be using the current vernacular, would be sketchy at best. And empty at worst. Yeah, yeah, I believe salvation through the Son. I, I like that at first, but I don't like it anymore. I'm going to come up with a different team. If God is immutable, not immutable, if he, he's subject to change, guess what? Salvation would cease to be eternal. And he doesn't change. He did what he covenanted to do before the world was. And so, fifthly, this, like many other things of God, can only be embraced by his grace. His gift of revelation. We know clearly Peter would not know that Jesus was the Son of God unless God had revealed that truth to him. Now, what am I saying in this also is we can ask questions. Surely we can. We can probe into this truth. But we will not in this life plumb its depths. I was watching something on the Limbo Caverns. And there's a body of water in the caverns, and they, they've gone down as far as 250 feet, and they still haven't reached the bottom. It's, they're sending something down like a plumb line, all the way down as far, a weighted string, a rope, as far down as they possibly can, and they had 250 feet, they still hadn't found it. And we, when it comes to the depths of of God manifested himself in the flesh will never plumb the depths of it in this life. And so we must do as the hymn commands that we just sang. Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly minded for with blessing in his hand, Christ, our God to earth, descendeth. Our full homage to demand. It's time to jettison the skepticism and adopt adoration. And so Merry Christmas. And may you marvel at the mystery and be grateful for what God has revealed. Let's stand together for prayer.